The question was, could this even look at a problem like CSAM? Because all of a sudden we're looking at relative body position. Is that sexual posing? And will it understand that versus something else? Is it a child? Is it an adult? These are these were real questions. They literally had to drag, the MVP was dragging their equipment into a Faraday cage at the UK home office to work on the database because they couldn't have anything connected to the internet. When the first time that they ran it through and they had a, a high enough success rate of identification, they knew it was going to be something that they could refine into a real product. It was a eureka moment. My name is Chris Wexler. I'm the CEO of Crewnon. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Chris Wexler built the system to identify and classify predatory online content. All this and more on Code Story. Chris Wexler had a crazy path to get where he is today. By his count, he is on his sixth career. His first job was on Capitol Hill, followed up with a stint in Wall Street. After that, he produced independent theater and then got into marketing and advertising, being one of the early adopters of ad tech. He's married with two daughters and is a huge baseball fan, the Minnesota Twins specifically. He reads a lot of nonfiction books, interestingly about public projects and how it portrays power distribution in the United States. All along his career, he was involved in the prevention of human trafficking. He has family members running organizations focused on this specific philanthropic pursuit. The opportunity came about for Chris to utilize all the different skill sets he'd obtained over his career, plus his advocacy for fighting human trafficking. And with that, it was a no-brainer for him to start his current venture. This is the creation story of Crewnom. Crunam is a technology company that is uh, that has a product that can identify and classify um, child sexual abuse materials, so CSAM. Parochially, people have called that child porn. We, in the movement, don't talk about it that way because pornography implies consent and children just can't consent. That's impossible. And so it is really sexual abuse. The product actually is something that was developed initially for law enforcement. So it's in use across uh, national law enforcement in the UK. My partners and I met up with the Vigil AI, the, the people who built that technology. In fact, the, la- the first face-to-face meeting was right before the pandemic started. And so we started uh, really talking about forming this joint venture all the way through the pandemic and working through how to work with our partners on the public sector because we the data is actually illegal to train on. And so we are partnering with the UK government to have access to their database. And doing all of that at distance was a really fascinating, interesting thing. What we've come up with is a joint venture called Crewnom. We're a public benefit corporation. And so we are you know jointly driving business outcomes, but also driving uh, our societal outcome of fighting uh, CSAM. And our technology is one for any company that holds third-party data. Now, initially, we're targeting the large platforms. You think social media, think file storage and uh, cloud storage that these predators are using 
just like we use to move pictures of our family, they're using it to uh, move uh, pictures of abuse to help those platforms make sure that these predators aren't using their platforms. And so taking something that came from a law enforcement background and, br- and bringing it out to, you know, say Azure or, you know, OneDrive or something like that for Microsoft, the idea is to really make it hard for these predators to use the tools we all use every day to share images and videos. Our technology uses computer vision um, that's trained with deep learning and AI on the largest, finest grained database of these illegal images that's been put together by law enforcement. Three different law enforcement officers have to actually agree that it is what it is before it gets in our training set. So I think a lot of uh, particularly machine learning uh, image recognition elements, um, you know, you see it have a fairly high error rate these days, but that's largely because the data isn't trained very well. And so we have the combination of a large data set, but also a finely trained one. And so the result is a really powerful algorithm that gives content moderation teams a new tool to, to intercept and uh, take care of this horrible problem before it, before it gets out to the public. Because up until our solution, uh, technology could maybe identify 5 to 10% of what's out there. They could only identify what was already had found, been found in the past. Our technology, with a very low false positive rate, very low false negative rate, allows these content moderation teams to quickly not only weed it out of their data flow, but also prioritize it for things that are borderline for their content moderation teams. And so it's speed, it actually takes a cost, which is people looking at every one of these things, and not, not to mention damage to people who have to do this content moderation, but turns it into, it actually is a cost savings for these platforms, all while making their platform better for their users. It's a win-win. Just last year alone, there were just under 40 million reports and you know, just under 70 million instances of intercepted CSAM on public platforms. So we're talking Facebook, we're talking uh, pretty much anybody you can think of. Facebook's done a, a good job of, of really identifying and reporting this to authorities. But when you think about that, you know, that's 70 million kids' lives that have been damaged and re, re-abused every time that image is shared. And so, and it's damaging the people that are viewing it because often it's somebody who's been abused in their past. And um, they have a strange compulsion to view this content. And once you, you know, we, we hear it over and over again on, with abusers as well. I, I looked at the content for years and I finally acted. We want to break that cycle. Well, tell me about the MVP. Tell me about that first product you built, how long it took to build, and what sort of tools you and your team used to bring it to life. Our uh, chief technology officer, Scott Page, and uh, one of our co-founders, Ben Gantz, both were co-founders, literally did a pro bono project for the UK government. Uh, you, you know, doing free work for the government, that's easy to do, right? Ben is was, a, at the time, a former um, child sexual abuse investigator. And he realized that at, when he was doing these investigations, he was spending 80% of his time sorting through confiscated materials and 20% of his time actually investigating the crime. So as a result, he was only really able to like investigate and get to prosecution the most egregious or the easiest uh, cases to close. 
And he realized uh, um, and talked to Scott, who's a, this amazing technologist and an expert in his field in computer vision. With the data we have in this emerging, you know, it was 2015, this emerging technology of deep learning, that maybe we could uh, have uh, AI step in and do the work here. It's a perfect thing for AI to do it uh, and machines to do. It's repetitive, it's boring. It's a relatively low instance example, like, uh, you know, of all the things that are across Facebook, it's relatively, thank goodness, relatively low instance. And when you see it, it's really psychologically damaging. It's, it's disturbing. So it's like a perfect thing for a computer to step in and do. But it was asking a lot because, you know, we, you know, if you think about the scandals or, or things you've heard about facial recognition, for example, that it really struggles with black faces or it's struggle, you know, and, and it's wrong enough that, um, people the wrong people are getting arrested the facial recognition software has been shown millions and millions and millions of faces the question was could this even look at a problem like csam because all of a sudden we're looking at relative body position we're looking at is that sexual posing and will it understand that versus something else is it a child? Is it an adult? These are these were real questions, and so they literally had to drag the MVP was dragging their equipment into a Faraday cage at the UK Home Office to work on uh, the database because they couldn't have anything connected to the internet. Typically, these things you go and throw it in the cloud, you do some work, and you see what happens. They had to do all the work on site. When the first time that they ran it through and they had a, a high enough success rate of identification that they knew it was going to be something that they could refine into a real product. It was a eureka moment. You know, with that data that they that they literally did on their own time with their own effort, they were able to secure a small grant from the government and then uh, continued to refine, added video. Uh, we'll have live streaming support later this year, adding these features uh, largely for UK um, law enforcement. So it's this perfect example of a private public partnership leading to a product that we can now bring to a, a wider audience. That was Vigil AI, and so um, they're a full full member of the joint venture of Kurunam that we're now taking that technology and bringing it even further, and so and, and continuing to refine and build that. Sometimes it's you know when you talk about MVP, sometimes it's proving out you have an audience. Sometimes it's proving out the tech. In this case, it was proving access to data. Um, because that's really the problem here is that it's a catch-22 in building AI around CSAM because it's illegal to hold that, that content. Once they proved access and then proved that the technology was robust enough to actually identify this reliably, because if you have a high false positive or negative rate, it, be it became a really powerful policing tool. So now it's been rolled out widely uh, with UK law enforcement and uh, we're bringing it to the rest of the world and have, uh, you know, we're in deep in testing with quite a few names that you would recognize around the globe. And it's exciting. It's an exciting uh, time for us. With any MVP, right, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, you know, what features you can add in, what you can, what what that robust technology can include, or even technical debt, things like that. Um, so maybe a step after you prove that the data was available and the tech was robust enough, what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the product and how did you cope with them? The powerful thing that uh, we were able to do is focus. Because when you look at CSAM, you think, oh, I have to solve it all. But by deciding, we're going to work into other front ends. 
we're going to build APIs in and out. We're not going to build an entire ecosystem. We're going to build a module that we can then plug into existing investigative front ends in the in law enforcement in in the case on the enterprise that we can plug into existing content moderation systems or off the shelf systems. We made a decision to instead of try to build the entire suite, be amazing at one thing, which is classifying and identifying and classifying. Because I think if the distraction had been we have to build a front end, that wasn't a strength. And so we we actually partnered with other companies for for front ends and um, very successfully. There would have been major technical debt otherwise. The nice thing is because we were starting in law enforcement, the needs, uh, you know, talking to the uh, talking to the consumers, uh, custo- the initial customers, really useful and really powerful, and we had a strong connection, and so we could understand what would be helpful for them on a day to day basis. And so I think it was deciding to focus on a very specific part of the process that was actually the hardest nut to crack, and letting other platforms that were out there do um, do the the, you know, uh, you know, the front end or the back, uh, some other of the processing work, but create a product that could fold into existing workflows was a really smart strategic choice um, and being close to the customer. And so, you know, the, we're just going to be replicating that as we uh, move into the uh, enterprise space. So as you progress the product, how did you go through that process? How did you mature it and build it more robust? And you know, how did you build your roadmap and figure out this is the next most important thing to build or to address? We had a dual path to kind of adding features and that is the development literally of computer vision and AI. So as different architecture came out as different um, processes of um, computer vision um, uh, emerged. The question is, you know, do we um, stay in a a three-dimensional space or do we add a fourth dimension of time? Um, And so, and then, so then doing small scale again, MVP tests, is this going to, is this going to move the ball forward for a consumer, for us to be able to train on less data, fill in the blank? But it was largely driven by uh, technological innovation because we, we really, um, because of the nature of uh, the problem, we knew we had to have the absolute best product. So laser focused on one part of the process and then keeping on the very bleeding edge of that technology was really critical for us. Again, because small error rates when you're talking about data sets of billions of images are insane. And so, and particularly when you move into video, because then you're looking at error rates stacked on error rates. And so first it was, let's get that image classifier absolutely bleeding edge. And then let's build, and then the next step was we saw this emergence of video uh, as CSAM. Uh, As recent as 2016, you know, 80% of CSAM were still images. But as everyone in the world is walking around with a 4K camera in their pocket with a smartphone, all of a sudden the flow of CSAM became video. And so having a video classifier was absolutely critical. I mean, I think 60% of identified CSAM last year was video. That was the next stage, was really following the situation on the ground and adding that. And now in COVID, what we're seeing is that the uh, the that organized crime and people who were having people travel to abuse children are now because people couldn't travel um, are moving to a live stream where they meet in a chat room somewhere, exchange Bitcoin, and then have a live show done for them on live streaming, which then pushed us into the live streaming space. And so it was 
really following the adaptation of the predators and their use of technology that drove uh, the most pressing needs for us uh, on uh, technological development. And so the quicker we can find that image, get it to the authorities, and then have them go get that kid out of that scenario where they're literally being abused over and over, that is a critical, like, urgent need right now for for society and for law enforcement. And so that's, again, another reason why um, we focused our technology on finding novel images, because that's really critical. Let's switch to team. So tell me how you built your team and what you looked for in these people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you at CrewNAM. Because we're a joint venture, what's great is that we're, we're bringing two cultures together. We're, well, we're, we're bringing a, a really strong established technological core with our uh, co-founders of Scott and Ben and Simon. Um, and so, uh, uh, and then what we're doing is we're building kind of the, the, the enterprise side, uh, as we go. And so what we're, we're, it's, I built a lot of teams in my day. Um, the first thing I always look for is internal motivation. If someone isn't internally motivated to, to achieve goals and to do what, um, and to, uh, and to ex- uh, excel, they're never going to be great at what they do because you can't teach that. That's either there or it isn't. Um, You can goose it, you can push it a little, you can play games, but in the end, I want the ideal partner um, for me in any organization is somebody I'm like, hey, it's it's six o'clock on Friday, why don't you go home? It's time to time to log off and and not be working right now. And so that's kind of the first thing. The next thing you really are looking for in in the case um, uh, of Krunam is someone who has some passing um, has a passion or some um, interest in uh, fighting CSAM because it's an emotionally difficult spot. You need to be resilient. Um, uh, it because you're dealing with really the worst, uh, some of the worst abuse you can put on a person. It leaves lifelong scars, and so. Um, and luckily, you know, nobody's going to uh, come and ask to work with us if that really turns them off. But, you know, the combination of strong motivation and that and that then we get to skills. And so then the skills are we either train up or we because we're figuring things out as we go too. it's it's we're building essentially a category in uh, enterprise software, which is um, protecting from online harms. Um, there are, uh, you know, I think the last, you know, I always think of, you know, I think if you look at the adoption of technology in history, it's typically a 30-year window that it takes for um, for us to adapt to a new technology. When uh, radio came, it took 30 years for us to figure it out. When television came, it took 30 years for us to figure it out and settle into it. Um, we're in the, and I think we were delayed a little bit by the last administration, but we're in the beginning of that third decade with the internet of really refining what does it mean to society to have uh, to have the internet in our lives. And it's a fundamental reorganization. We really went from the first 10 years of, yeah, it's a thing, and um, uh, promotion. The next 10 years was scaling. And so you saw Google and Amazon and and Facebook just come out of nowhere, Badoo, all the Chinese platforms. Um, now, I think, and, and so what we were doing was kind of facilitating free speech and facilitating business. What we're getting to in the last 10 years is really refining that. And 
um, figuring out what's going to be best practices, what's going to be regulation, what's going to be best for society. And, you know, when you think about communication platforms, free speech is critical. Um, it's absolutely important. But the other side of free speech is actually um, speech that is not protected. And so when you think about that, that's true threats, that's um, incitement to violence, that's blackmail, that's obscenity, which is where CSAM comes in. Um, and so these are things that the courts and uh, and uh, ha have really uh, confirmed over time that there are classes of uh, language that's so harmful that there's a there's a compelling governmental reason to control it. Well, that's a good framework for these platforms. They need to control harmful speech. They need to conform uh, because it's damaging to their communities. It's damaging to their employees who are trying to deal with it. It's damaging to their reputation. I think Facebook's seeing that, um, you know, coming out of the, you know, when uh, Facebook and Twitter, when they banned uh, Trump coming out of the January 6th insurrection, they saw that this is harming their reputation. And so, you know, what you're seeing is the big boys are building these tools internally as best they can. It's harder to do with CSAM because they don't have the data or they're not allowed, they're not supposed to keep the data. Um, but so these, um, it's really a critical, like we're at the beginning stage of I think a really exciting um, but really difficult thing of how do we um, regulate these um, communities so frankly people aren't getting harassed off the platforms. Uh, you and I are guys. We have a very different experience on social media than women. That's something that these platforms need to police and 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 fix, because it's going to eventually kill any kill their business, and frankly, it's really damaging to their their customers. And so, you know, we're at early days right now. CSAM is like an absolute like no brainer um, case in point of this, um, which was one of the reasons why we started here. But, you know, as we go through this, it's going to be violence detection. It's going to be blood detection. It's going to be um, looking at bullying, cyberbullying. There are a lot of good companies doing um, really interesting natural language processing work in the space of bullying, cyberbullying. And so um, it's an emerging category of technology that is really critical to the future of um, our uh, lives that are really organized digitally now. Um, and that's going to be the next 10 years. And it's an exciting time. Yeah, that's very that's very interesting. Are you familiar with uh, with products like Bark? I had their CTO on the show uh, last first season actually, uh, and I really liked their their product. I don't know if you consider them a uh, compliment or a competitor. I'm I'm not certain. Well, I think anytime we're you know, uh, I, I I'm a big believer in we're not competing. We're all striving for excellence, and so. Um, unless somebody is literally bad mouthing my product, I don't really view it as a competitor because I think, you know, and that's the other nice thing about the protection space and the trust and safety space. Uh, when we're, you know, talking to our customers, uh, at, uh, these big technology companies, they talk to each other all the time because there's a competitive advantage of not only for them to not only take care of this, but to make sure they're, um, nobody's behind and nobody's way ahead. Um, and so it's a rare, um, it's, it kind of feels like the early days of working in the internet with me a little bit of where it was much more collaborative and much less, um, segmented. And, and it's, it, I've always worked better in collaborative environments. I've worked in, in a lot of creative environments. 
Um, and so it's so I think we I, I think a lot of the uh, companies in this category feel the same way that hey we're all striving to the same goal the, the the pie is definitely big enough for all of us let's go do it and if that means sometimes we merge together or we partner that's a great thing. Well, this will be interesting, but I want to talk about scalability a little bit. You're you're using obviously a massive data set and and the technology has to be able to move quickly. So in, as far as scalability, did you build this to scale efficiently in the beginning or were you kind of fighting this as you grew? You know, it's interesting because the original use case was um, a Windows 95 machine sitting on some detective's desk in, you know, the Highlands of Scotland, which is a very different use case than, you know, uh, sitting on uh, a cloud server somewhere. But as a result, we had to build it so it worked um, efficiently because you're going to be on like we had to build it for really weak hardware. Because um, uh, even to this day, even with a fairly really low um, hardware set, there's still um, officers that aren't able to use it because their computers are 20 years old. So as a result, it had to be really efficient. We're not at the, you know these millions of images are actually in our, our it builds an algorithm. Um, and so uh, that's relatively, you know, contained. Uh, but we can also, you know, what we can do is, you know, we're constantly working on building um, faster processing rates and, and et cetera, et cetera. But we can also, you know, our licenses allow for um, simultaneous uh, application. And, you know, we put it through Docker so people can kind of quickly plug it into their systems. Having it easily plug into enterprise systems is really critical in scale. And so, like, we realize that we're going to have to, um, you know, and, and we've had tests where, you know, it has to scale to the billions of images a day. And so it, it's quite a wide set when you have to go, okay, you have to work on a Windows 95 machine and uh, and uh, handle a billion images a day without disrupting workflows. And uh, luckily, uh, you know, we've been able to solve that problem. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built, what are you most proud of? the team uh you know we're, we're working with amazing you know we, we have i get to work with amazing people every day and i'm excited what we're going to be able to do to help change the face of the internet for better not only for kids but um, just in, for users and uh, and for and for content moderators and and really make their lives better and so the combo platter of just an amazing team and and uh a great vision for the future is is a it, it makes it really easy to boot up every morning well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I think for you know, I think one of the interesting ones is in in the sales area because um, I, we started by reaching out to fellow technologists. So you know, we're like, we're an AI product. We'll reach out to the AI teams, and that was it was a really hard way to get into organizations because. When you talk to people that get compensated for building things, their bias isn't to buy things off the shelf that even if it's, you know, 10x what they could do by themselves, it's not how they're rewarded in their organization. And so we started finding other doorways in to organizations. And so going through trust and safety, talking to pe people in PR that are worried about scandal, talking to board members that understand the existential risk of uh, having this kind of content on their platforms. And so it was, I think, despite being a technology company, it was um, 
our mistake initially was going through the door of technology. And instead of selling the solution, we were selling the technology. And uh, once we started um, really talking about the solution, that's when we gained a ton of traction. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? Well, you know, we're at a really interesting point. We're still quite early stage. And so we're a relatively small team. We have to simultaneously be very tiny and nimble right now and prepare for massive growth because we have um, some really big opportunities on the on the front lines. So we have to behave like a small group and nimble, but start building governance and uh, organization that can sustain growth to 500,000 people. Um, and so it's like living a dual life. That's been the most uh, kind of think intellectually challenging part of kind of building an organization because typically I think you go, okay, well, I'll get this number of clients and that number of clients. But the traction we got was so fast and so furious that we have to be ready to scale very, very, very fast. And so uh, working through that is always fun. <laughs> Let's switch to you, Chris. Who influences the way that you work? You know, CEO, CPTO, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. Well, I'm going to give a, a trite answer, but it's my dad. Uh, he was a he was a government attorney. Um, he was at the Minnesota Attorney General's office for 35 years, and so or 40 years. Um, and he 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 started the first health law division that they had. So like he's like kind of was kind of innovating in the in the law area, but. Um, I learned a couple things from him, um, some helpful, some not, but one of it was how to treat um, people that work for you and how to get the best out of them. And what I didn't realize is that he was kind of teaching me that even as I was young, just talking about how he uh, you know, set people up for success and made sure to hire people that were smarter than him. And, you know, uh, and so um, I think either intentionally or not, he taught me how to be an amazing manager of people. Um, once I realized it, that it was such a blessing. Um, and the other thing he taught me is the most efficient you can be is the last 10 minutes of any task. So just make that 20 minutes and you'll get a lot done. It just made me late to a lot of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? Well, I think we're pretty close to the beginning right now. So um, we haven't had to pivot and, and we aren't even looking at a pivot right now. Um, so I might have to just say incomplete because we're still we're still early stages of moving into this enterprise space. Um, I think if we had, um, you know, had the, you know, could be, I think the focus so early in the product life before I was around was so focused on law enforcement. I think that was the, the pivot to enterprise was probably a little, you know, probably could have come sooner um, because law enforcement's really difficult because um, there, there's some countries like the UK that are unified and well-funded, but typically, particularly in this area, law enforcement is relatively underfunded. Um, in the US, it's highly fractionalized. You have um, city, county, state, federal, people all investigating similar crimes. None of them have unified budgets or unified technology. And so it's a really, um, oddly enough, underfunded and fragmented um, uh, environment. And so I think the pivot to enterprise would have come sooner. And frankly, um, you know, when you think about systemically how this works, 
it it's going to have a larger impact because it's going to actually be able to flow more um, more more elements into law enforcement, which then will push for more resources, which you know, and hopefully bring it to them in a way that they can prioritize a little better. Um, and so I think we would have, um, I think often whenever you're solving a societal problem or a business problem, you have to swim upstream and, uh, uh, and move upstream on the problem. And, um, I think we should have, we probably could have done that a little earlier. Well, last question, Chris. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane in your seat. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I would say, listen, as much as you speak, um, every, you know, I think often you're so excited about your product. You're so excited about your goals that you forget that what the sale that you're making either to a consumer or to a business in a B2B setting, um, really what they care about is their goal. And so, um, I think too often we fall in love with our own product and we forget to talk about why the product, why somebody else should fall in love with it. And so it's about listening and empathy and adding that feedback loop into your, uh, into your product development and into your marketing is really understanding, okay, what do you really need? And, um, you may find out that something that was the coolest feature in the world for you actually isn't all that useful to your consumers. It's a painful thing and it's uh, to, to do and kill your darlings. Um, but uh, sometimes you need to do that. And it's a more painful thing if you've spent a million dollars developing it. So if you can set that, um, you know, that feedback loop and that, um, and listen more than you speak as much as you speak, uh, that's, I think my biggest piece of advice, no matter what the category you're in. That's great advice. Well, Chris, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Krunam. Thank you. It, it was a real pleasure to talk with you, Noah. I really appreciate you allowing me to tell the story to your audience. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.